Donald Trump called him tough. Rush Limbaugh read one of his articles live on his radio show. Ann Coulter tweeted that article to her one and a half million followers and declared, every sentence is perfect. Ladies and gentlemen, your host, former chief editor of the Jewish Press, Elliot Resnick. Welcome to the Elliot Resnick Show. With us today is Simcha Yakobovich, a three-time Emmy winner for outstanding investigative journalism. He has also received numerous other awards, including a Certificate of Special Merit from the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, a gold medal from the International Documentary Festival of Nyon, three U.S. Cable Ace Awards, two Gemini Awards, an Alfred I. DuPont Columbia University Award, and the Carl Spielfogel Award and Edward R. Morrow Award from the Overseas Press Club of America. He has produced programming for the National Geographic Channel, for the History Channel, for the Discovery Channel, for PBS, for NBC. He's been on Larry King Live, The Oprah Winfrey Show, NBC Today. He published a best-selling book. He has produced documentaries with Samuel Jackson, with James Cameron. In short, he is a very, very accomplished filmmaker. Simcha, it's a great honor to have you on the program today. You've directed 16 documentaries in total, if I'm not mistaken. Today, though, I'd like to focus on three of them. In 1998, you directed a film called Quest for the Lost Tribes that tries to track down the 10 tribes exiled by Assyria over 2,500 years ago. You discussed the Bnei Menashe and Bnei Israel groups in India, which I believe are now accepted by the state of Israel as Jewish and possibly descendants of the Lost Tribes. But more interesting than these two groups, I think, are the Pashtuns of Afghanistan and Pakistan. Americans regard this group as a radical Muslim group, but you argue that they might be Jewish. Why? When we read the Torah, there are 12 tribes, okay? We act like there's only the tribe of Judah, and that's why we're called Jews. But actually, there's 12 tribes. Also, all prophecy says that when Mashiach comes, these tribes will be reunited. So any believing Jew, any Orthodox Jew, should think that they're out there somewhere, because if they're going to be reunited... Where are they? Now, it used to be that you could think, well, they're across a mythical river, and we call it Sambation. But today, you know, we've got satellites. You can pretty much go wherever you want. If there are 10 of the 12 tribes hiding somewhere, we should be able to locate them. So what happened to them? Well, I always like to start with the Tanakh. And I ask very simple questions. You know, I'm very much a pshat guy. I'm not a complicated person. So what I say is, where does the Tanakh say they went? And it, it gives an address. They went to a place called Havor by a river called Gozan. And me being a very simple person, I went to a travel agent and I bought a ticket to Havor by the river Gozan. Now, where is that? Well, we talk about the famous Khyber Pass. Khyber Pass, which in Hebrew is still called Peshchavor or Peshawar, in Pakistan. The English called it the Khyber Pass between Afghanistan and Pakistan. A lot of battles over there, center of bin Laden, center of the drug trade, heroin. Well, okay, so there's a place called Havor. It's on the map. Is it near a river called Gozan? Well, sure enough, it's near a, a river called Ghazni today. Right? So I went to a travel agent. And I said, well, you know, the Tanakh says that that's where I should be meeting the lost tribes of Israel. I'm not a very deep guy. I'm just going to buy a ticket and go there. And I did. And if you go there today, and you should be a little bit careful because it's not the safest area of the world, 
But if you go there today and a taxi driver comes and takes you to the hotel, the taxi driver will look like a Chabadnik from Manhattan, beard, giant kippah, something like mine. And if you very politely say, excuse me, sir, what ethnicity do you belong to? You'll have 16 million people in modern Afghanistan, and there's a spillover into Pakistan because of war. You'll have 16 million people say, I'm a Bani Israel. Bani Israel, Bnei Israel. So if you go exactly where the Tanakh tells you to go, there's 16 million people, coincidentally, that say we are the children of Israel. Now, if you follow that up while you're driving to your hotel and you talk to your taxi driver and you say, oh, you're Bani Israel, but is that your religion? So today, that's the answer. Today we are Muslims, but we know that we are Bani Israel. And you say, okay, but do you belong to any specific tribe? I said, oh, yes. Which tribes? I said, oh, many tribes. Which tribe, Mr. Taxi Driver, do you belong to? And he'll tell you. He could say Afridi, which sounds exactly like Ephraim. He could say Ruveni, which is one of the tribes is Ruven. He could say Gadun, and one of the tribes is God. Now, that's one heck of a coincidence that exactly where the Tanakh says you should find the so-called lost tribes of Israel, you find people, millions of people who call themselves Israelites and are still divided according to tribal divisions. And you also say in the documentary that they also have interesting traditions that seem to match our traditions. They wear something that resembles a talus. They have Ari Miklat, cities of refuge for people who commit murder accidentally. They also sometimes light candles Friday night. So there also are intriguing customs that seem to overlap ours. Yes, I mean, there is an, a concerted effort by radical Islamic groups to wipe out the Israelite consciousness from the Pashtun, or Pafans, as they're called. But they have their own laws. It's called the Pushtu. They don't say Pathan, they say Pukhtu. By the way, you can find Afghani Pathans in Boston and in Toronto, and uh, you can interview them yourself. And if you ask them, and I did, What's your law? They'll say the Puktu Wali, the law of the Pathan. And if you ask them, as I did, if there is a conflict between Islam and the Puktu Wali, your law, what do you choose? And the majority of Pathans will tell you Puktu Wali. That's why many Muslims don't consider them true Muslims. That's why when they had a big Islamic conference in Iran, the Pathans weren't invited. So what you have is millions of people, by the way, roughly the same amount of prophecy says that there'll be, you know, a joining of Judah and Joseph in the times of the Mashiach. And you have roughly the same amount of Pathans, Israelites, Bani Israel, as you do Jews. Interesting. Other coincidence. Right. By the way, I think we stupidly, we the Jewish people of the West and Israel, stupidly, don't connect with these people. We dismiss their claims. So, for example, I had one Israeli professor tell me they just made it up. 16 million Muslims got together and made up a Jewish past, really? What interest would they have to do that? Why would they make it up? Another one, not the brightest guy, said that 
the reason these people made up their Israelite past is they wanted to leave a conflict area and come to a peaceful place like Israel. I mean, it's total nonsense. <laughs> if you want to make a past for yourself, I mean, say that you're originally from the French Riviera. Don't say that you came from <laughs> from Israel. If you want a nice, peaceful, uh, quiet you know, retirement home. Right. Anyway, you, anyway, you, you, so so what I what I think is there's no question that there's an Israelite connection between the pathans of modern Afghanistan and Pakistan and the Jews. And if we were smart, we would try to connect with that past. I'm not saying 16 million Pathans would desert Islam and come to Israel. But you know what? Maybe half a million would. And that would be amazing. After I watched the film, I went on the internet to Google the topic a little bit. So first of all, it is interesting. You did the film three years before 9-11. So I wonder if anything changed after 9-11, considering that the terrorists came from that region. But also, when I was Googling the matter, so I went on Wikipedia and sure enough, there's an extended discussion of the possible Jewish origins of this tribe. They have this long tradition. But one of the arguments against this tradition is apparently some people did some DNA testing and the DNA doesn't match up all that great. I think it's like a 15% overlap between their DNA and Middle Eastern DNA. Now, I, I know nothing about DNA testing and the science behind it, but I was wondering if how you reconcile how you deal with the DNA testing, which may very well have been done after your film came out. Well, first of all, 15% is a lot. But second of all, it's a very complex thing. I mean, if you start doing DNA tests, you know, how much Khazar blood we have, how much, you know, the closest, the Palestinian DNA, by the way, is a perfect match to the Jewish, the ones that are local, that didn't come from Turkey or elsewhere, after the Zionist movement started bringing Jews back to Israel. So DNA, I, I don't know enough about it, and I don't see that as a criterion. And I would have to see what they're talking about. I mean, there's a tribe in Africa that claims Israelite a Jewish background, actually. And they have priests that they claim are originally Jewish. And their DNA is a perfect match to Kohanim. I don't see anybody going out there to uh, Zimbabwe and South Africa and trying to bring them to Israel. So right now, I don't know enough from now. And I don't find that particularly interesting because I don't know how the different... Remember, they had the same father, the tribe, Jacob, Israel and totally different mothers. So we really don't know. It's a much more complicated, the answer, the DNA. But I don't believe millions of people have made up an Israelite past for themselves. I don't believe millions of people call themselves the children of Israel for no reason, absolutely no reason. And there's testimonies of people who, look, there's Afghani Jews in Tel Aviv. I went and I talked to them. And you see that in the film. They say, oh, yeah. We remember them. My dad used to tell me that they used to say the Shema. I mean, what interest do they have to make this up? Orthodox Jews living in Tel Aviv in Afghani Jewish synagogues telling you how it used to be. By the way, if we just ask any Afghani living in L.A., Manhattan, Boston, or Toronto, why is Afghanistan called Afghanistan? Their answer would be, Oh, it's named after Afghan. It means the land of Afghan. And Afghan was the son of Saul, king of Israel. Now, 
We don't have a tradition, but we don't really know what the names of the various sons of Saul. We call one Ishboshet, man of shame. Like we have nicknames for these people. And once David took over the throne, the sons of Saul were not high on the hit parade. So according to Afghani traditions, one of the sons of the first king of Israel, Shaul, fled to that area. And the whole place has an Israelite name, meaning from their point of view, again, you could say they're just hallucinating, but from their point of view, millions of people will tell you the reason this place is called Afghanistan, it's named after the son of the king of Israel. Now, if you just look at their capital, their capital is called Kabul. Look in your Tanakh. There's two Kabuls in ancient Israel. Not one, but two. Okay? In the book of uh, Joshua, one of the places that Yeshua bin Nun conquers is Kabul. And there's another Kabul next to Haifa. And you can go today and see the excavations of Kabul in Israel, in the northern kingdom of Israel. So the capital is an Israelite name, Kabul. It's in your Tanakh. It's next to the Suleiman Mountains, the Shlomo Mountains, the mountains of King Solomon, meaning all over Afghanistan, all the names of the country and so on. For example, you know, they identify with Saul, not David. And Kish, you know, Shaul ben Kish, Saul, son of Kish. Kish, you don't find that among you know regular Jews, Kish as a name still, because we don't identify with Saul. But among Afghanis, Kish is a common name. Okay, so what I'm saying, there's so much connecting, pathans to an Israelite past and to fraternity with Jews that we should be reaching out to them. We would be stronger as a people if some of the Israelite tribes came back to Judaism, you know, which have some kind of conversion process for those that want and lived in Israel. Right. Interesting. Okay, I want to move on just just very quickly before I do move on. I did mention that the Bnei Menashe and Bnei Israel communities of India, which also you identify as possibly descendants of the Lost Tribes, they are more accepted since your film came out 25 years ago, much more accepted, I think. Has has there been any other progress in any other um, venue in terms of the Lost Tribes? In my film, you see the late Tzaddik great man, Rav Eliyahu Avichai, and he was the one that first made the connection with the Menmase, who called themselves Neymanashe, and they are in the area of Manipur and Mizoram in northern India. They are presently caught in a crossfire of a civil war in that area. Mm-hmm. Now, they have this tradition that they are Israelites, and they have this name, Menashe. And today, there are groups, and there's one, Shave Israel, that's are based actually out of Ranana, that helps them out. And the Israeli government, they'll bring them here if they undergo Orthodox conversion in India. So they learn there, and they keep Shabbat, and some of them, and then every once in a while a Beddin is sent over from Israel and convert them, and then they come to Israel. So I think there's about 400. You find them at every level of Israeli society. I think it's horrible, the slow system feels like controlled immigration. Why can't they convert them in Israel? They're not resisting conversion. They're looking for conversion. You have the irony that you have a Menashe boy or girl in the Israeli army 
and they can't get their siblings out. They can't get their parents out while they're serving the state of Israel. Orthodox, with a kippah on their heads. I think it's terrible. And I think it, again, speaks to our very limited, to use nice language, limited idea of, of who we're inviting to the Jewish party. We right. have a very limited idea of who can join the party. And it's it's not helpful. It's not good. It's not prophecy, that's for sure. I'm not sure what I think about it, but, but I do know if you have a choice between inviting secular Christian Russians into Israel versus people from India who want to be Jewish, maybe we should favor the latter rather than the former. But... If you have a document that you have one grandparent in Ukraine that was Jewish, you can come to Israel, no problem, and you can continue to celebrate Christmas and so on. But if you're right now, as we speak, in Manipur, and you've been practicing Judaism, you eat kosher, you keep Shabbat, all the things, you study Torah every day, you pray three times a day, you can't come. By the way, if you're a Hindu in India, you're more than welcome as a tourist, no problem. If you're a mitzvah-keeping Menashe in India, you can't come to Israel because they're afraid you might stay. So Hindu, welcome. Christian, welcome. What was that you say, Menashe? You're already two years keeping all the mitzvot and you want to go in front of a beddin? Why don't you take a number? And when we're ready, we'll send a beddin your way. Come okay. on. Come yeah. on. Is that Torah? I don't think so. Right, right. Okay, the second film I want to discuss with you is your 2005 film, The Exodus Decoded. Which, by the way, from a technological point of view, not that I know anything about filmmaking, but it was kind of impressive, very creative the way the film was done. But anyways, in that film, you tried to find historical evidence of the Exodus, and also explore natural explanations for the plagues based on the traditional teaching that God generally affects his miracles through nature. I found this latter endeavor particularly interesting, and you explain a lot of the plagues based on the eruption of a volcano and an earthquake, we don't have time, obviously, to go through all of them, but I want to go through some of the plagues. I guess let's start with the first one. How do you explain the plague of blood? Before I go straight to the blood, let me just say, I told you that I'm a very simple person, right? right. Very simple person. So it says everybody, you know, discussing all kinds of minutiae and they write PhDs. I'm a very simple person. In the Torah, it says that during the Exodus, two giant things happened. Giant things. Right? Not too little subtle things. We can get to the subtle thing. But what are the two giant things that happen? One is a mass exodus out of Egypt into Sinai, ending up 40 years later in Canaan and in Eretz Israel in, in Israel. So I ask a simple question Is there any evidence of a mass exodus in the Egyptian annals, in the hieroglyphics? That's one big thing. The other big thing that the Torah says is that these cataclysmic events happened at the same time as this mass exodus. Blood in the water, darkness, hail with fire on the inside and ice on the outside. Huge, huge things happened. You know, splitting seas. I mean, this is not, somebody's got to notice this kind of stuff, right? So if you ask any Egyptologist, any one of them, Tell me, if you ask what I asked, I said, let's not talk about the details of the biblical exodus, because they might say, nah, it's a myth. 
I don't want to talk. It's a myth, not a myth. I don't want to get into that argument with you. I just want to know, in Egyptian history, ancient Egyptian history, is there any record of cataclysmic events happening at the same time as a mass exodus? Yes or no? All Egyptologists will tell you, yes. We call it the Hicksaw period. There was the Semitic group, not the Jews, but the Semitic groups that we call Hyksos, that means foreigners in the Egyptian language of the time. These foreigners came to Egypt from where? From Canaan. Oh, oh yeah, but not the Jews. Yeah, no. They came there. They stayed there for a, a few hundred years. Uh-huh. They ruled at one time. Uh-huh. Then they became slaves or whatever, and they left en masse. Wow. But it's not the Jews. Yeah. Did you, are there any cataclysmic events? Yeah. When the volcano Serra, which is modern Santorini, one of my kids is planning to go visit Santorini, I think, next week. It's an island off of Greece. It's a tourist hotspot. It's beautiful. And it's still smoking, the Santorini volcano. After 3,500 years, it's literally still smoking. And you can take a boat ride in the mouth of the crater of the volcano. Yeah, when that happened, they'll tell you, it's one of the worst volcanic eruptions in recorded history. There was darkness, there were tsunamis, there were all kinds of stuff. So both huge events in the Torah are recorded in all history. But then they tell you, yeah, but it's the wrong date. That's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. They'll tell you, the Pharaoh eruption, the Santorini eruption happened 3,500 years ago, 1500 BC. But the Exodus, which didn't happen, by the way, happened 12-something BC, meaning the people date what didn't happen. They but, literally but, give date to what didn't happen, which right. is a totally illogical impossibility, right? But according, according to, to traditional Jewish dating, though, it did happen around, I think, 1300 BCE. Now we get into the subtle stuff. According to Seder Olam, it happened around 1300. But Seder Olam, and you see that in the Kaplan, Chumash, Seder Olam, they took out, because Christians were trying to all the time use Seder Olam to justify Jesus' Messiahship and all kinds of stuff. So one of the tricks that Seder Olam did is take out a few hundred years and put them to the side. Like an accountant who says, we in the know know that it's not 1300 BC, it's actually 1500 BC, but we'll take it out. If you look in the Kaplan Chumash, he has a whole footnote discussing this couple of hundred years, you know, like this, this, uh, I, I know the detail, but how, how would it help? But if you look, if you look in the Tanakh, you have, it's pretty much accepted that David was 10th century. And that the Exodus happened 480 years before King David. So you get back to 1480. If you look at 1480, 1500 BC, what happened 1500 BC? Two giant things. A mass exodus from Egypt, the so-called Hyksos, H-Y-K-S-O-S. You could look it up on Wikipedia. And the eruption of the Santorini volcano. So me being a very simple person, I say... What scholars call the Hyksos expulsion, the Torah calls Yetziat Mitzrayim, the exodus from Egypt. And the plagues, God's trigger 
is the Santorini eruption. Now, another moment. Some Orthodox people say, you're saying it's nature? You're saying it's not a miracle? I say, you know, if I say if I'm walking down the street and a guy pulls a gun on me and wants to do me harm to get my money or my wallet or whatever, and I look up to heaven, I say, Hashem, please, I don't want to go just yet. My family needs me. And that exact moment, a gust of wind takes a tile off a roof and the tile falls on my assailant's head, killing him and saving my life. I don't have to believe that the tile came flying from outer space or that the tile was created out of nothing, especially to save me. I believe it's a miracle, even if you tell me that the tile was loose and there was a gust of air. So just before Kriyat Yamsuf, Torah says something very interesting. It says that there was an east wind that blew all night. Right. Now, if I was writing the Torah, if I was writing a film script, and I wanted to make a miracle. I would start that passage. Never was there more still. There was no wind. Not a leaf moved in the wind. Because I would want to tell you it's a miracle. You know, you can't say it's the wind. But that's not what the Torah does. The Torah says that before the splitting of the sea, the east wind blew all night. Meaning the Torah is telling us to look at nature that God is using nature to affect the miracles, okay? It's telling us that explicitly. So if you look at, and I'll get to your blood, at the plagues, let's take one plague that seems like, oh, it just is not nature, it can't happen. Hail. It says that there was ice on the outside and there was fire on the inside. No hail has ice on the outside and fire on the inside. Well, actually, there is such a hail. It's called a Christianary Lapili. You can look it up on Wikipedia. And what it is, it's volcanic hail. When you have a volcanic eruption, it sends all this stuff into the atmosphere. As it comes back down the lava, the, the little black pieces of volcanic material are coming down through the atmosphere. Ice forms around it. So it falls to the ground, and it says it killed people. If it hits you in the head, it'll kill you. If it hits your cow, it'll kill you. If it's a big enough piece and coming strong enough. And if you pick up a piece that fell, what you'll see is a weird phenomenon. You'll see it's ice on the outside, but there's like crackling and fire on the inside because it's volcanic hail. And that fits perfectly with the eruption of Santorini. Not only that. Santorini volcanic material has been found in the excavations in Egypt dating back to 1500 BCE. By the way, darkness. The Torah says that the darkness wasn't just dark. It says it was thick. You couldn't see your brother next to you. You couldn't light a candle. It was a thick darkness. Well, we know for a fact that the Santorini ash cloud went over Egypt because just across the Mediterranean and enveloped ancient Egypt at the time of Moshe Rabbeinu in a thick, thick ash cloud. Now, when it comes to blood, this is very interesting. What is blood? Why is blood red? Because there's an iron in it. 
That's what makes blood red. If your iron is low, there's not enough red cells in it. And what happened with the turning all of the water into, uh, you see this phenomenon, I show it in the film. If you look up neon, N-Y-O-N, in Africa, you'll see that this happened exactly the same way. That's why it I happened. find it so interesting, because you actually have film footage of a modern version of it. Go on, sorry. That's right. It releases, if there's some kind of earthquake or moving movement, and if you have in the right places where you have uh, iron material at the bottom of a lake, or you have like uh, a meteor come in, or you have a landslide in, what it does, it releases it to the top. The gas comes up. The gas is low-hanging. It's heavy. So that means that, first of all, the water turns red, blood red. Why? Because it's iron. So it's not human blood, and it's not animal blood. It's water blood, which means it's heavy with iron, and it turns red. But also the gas is heavy. What does that mean? That any, it happened in Neon, in Africa. Anybody who went to sleep on a low cot died. The gas killed them. Anybody who was high slept on a rooftop because it was hot, didn't smell anything, didn't feel anything, stayed alive. So if you take the eruption of Thera, modern Santorini, and you compare the plagues, even the sequence that it happened, it's exactly following a volcanic eruption. And we know, was there a volcanic eruption in the time of the Exodus? Yes. Was it close to Egypt? Yes. But just across the water. I just want to clarify, you say in the film that the firstborns in Egypt, because they had a higher status, they therefore were allowed to sleep on beds close to the ground, whereas other people would have slept much higher up. You can see ancient Egyptian beds. I think the Metropolitan in New York has it. They look like futon beds, frames. They're low to the ground. In those days, the average person didn't have houses with a bedroom like in the United States, a bedroom for every kid. So the privileged kids slept properly, low to the ground in a bed. The kids who were not the firstborn, who were not the heirs, slept on rooftops, on hay, all over the place. So again, it would make sense that the heirs, the firstborn, the special children, would be killed in this gas leak. I just want to make sure for the audience, because I watched the film, they haven't yet at least. I encourage them to look it up on YouTube. But... This, it's, called, it's called the Exodus Decoded, right? and you, you can see it on YouTube, and it's very sneers. And James Cameron, the famous filmmaker, is a co-host with me, James Cameron of Titanic and Avatar fame. I just want to clarify, though, for the audience, your explanation for this volcanic eruption, it sounds like to someone who doesn't know that all these things would have happened at once. We're arguing that the no, it would, it would have taken several months for all these different Natural... They, never, they never happen at once. So traditionally, the, traditionally, the place happened over like you know, a period of six months or so. It's... Yeah, that makes sense from a scientific point of view. What happens, by the way, is I don't believe that the volcanic eruption caused all these other things. Other people have pointed to the Santorini eruption as a trigger, a cause. I actually believe that there was what scientists now call geologists earthquake storm that means you have a series of tectonic moves and they cause storm the movement of the plates is what caused the volcanic eruption 
So what you have is some of the things that we see during Yetziat Mitzrayim in Egypt is not a result of Santorini, but rather like the death of the firstborn, it's a result of the shifting plates, tectonic plates. You're in an earthquake zone. You got to understand that when you look at the map today of that area, you're staring at where the African plate meets the Middle Eastern plate. Israel and Egypt is literally sitting on massive fault lines. So if you have, as you do from time to time, shifting plates, then you're going to have exactly the sequence of events that you see in the Torah as the 10 plates. We're running a little bit late, so we don't really have much time to discuss the last film that I wanted to discuss, but I just want to ask one question about it, because it is an interesting film called Hollywoodism, Jews, Movies, and the American Dream. You know, anti-Semites sometimes talk about Jews running Hollywood, but leaving that aside, it is a fact that in the beginning, virtually every major studio head was Jewish. Adolf Zucker of Paramount, Universal, MGM, Fox, 20th century, all almost all of them. Anyways, and the basic thesis of the film is that the Jewish background and experiences of these movie moguls heavily influenced the films coming out of Hollywood in the first three decades of the industry. And one thing that, that I found interesting, which if you could just talk about briefly, I would appreciate, is that you argue, or the film argues, that the background, the Jewish background of these moguls explains the hopeful and optimistic tone of Hollywood films, which till today as you well know, and many people know, distinguishes American films from European films, is that they're so hopeful and that they're so optimistic. Could, could you just talk about this point a little bit, this Jewish optimism or Jewish hope and how that affects Hollywood? Yeah, I mean, you point out, anti-Semites want to say it's a bad thing that Jews uh, have influence in Hollywood. You know, I mean, it is what it is. All the studios were founded by Jews, immigrant Jews at that. And the Jewish immigration at the time was the only immigration that... You know, a lot of people, let's say Italians, they came to America, not with their wives and children. They came to make money. They were hoping to go back to the old country. They loved the old country. The only people who spat on the old country from the boat were the Jews who were fleeing pogroms and persecution and the Pale of Settlement and all this stuff. So the Jews were a unique migrant group to America because they came with a dream of America with no desire to go back to the old country, zero. So what did they dream? They dreamt of a place where, you know, you could uh, practice your religion freely, where you could get to the top and nobody stopped you. The little guy could marry the, you know, love conquers all. The little guy could marry the boss's daughter. When they got to America, and this is based in large part, I added some stuff, but there's a, a fantastic book by Neil Gabler, called An Empire of Their Own, How the Jews Invented Hollywood, was a bestseller. They came to America, and they found that the America of their dreams, the America they dreamt of in the shtuttle, where the little guy can make it to the top, that's not what they found. They found a Protestant-ruled America where the little guy had to know his place. The Jews couldn't join any country club. First they thought, oh, if I make money, then I can join anything. People think these Jewish moguls went to California to make money in movies. No, they went there to lose money in movies. All of them were people who had made money, like Zucker and Fur. All of these guys had made money thinking, now that I've made money, the door will be wide open. I'll be accepted by American society. They weren't. So what did they do? They went as far west as they could. And they created the America 
of their shtetl dreams on film. They created America where the little guy could marry the boss's daughter, where everybody was equal. In Hollywood films, blacks, Jews, whites fought together in World War II. They were all in the same battalion. The American army was still segregated until after World War II. You know, we imagine an America where there was some sheriff comes into a town, and this town is, uh, <laughs> you know, there's these people with high boots outside of the town, and they come riding through the town, and they kill people, and they persecute them until the sheriff with a white hat comes in and saves the decent townspeople. And we think this happened in the American West. This happened in Poland. This happened in Ukraine. The Cossacks were outside, and they were going into the shtetls, killing and raping. The sheriff with the white hat is a Mashiach figure that is protecting the nice townspeople from the Cossacks outside. They basically took their experiences, these Jewish moguls, and dreams from the shtetls, and they created movies that convinced America that this is what America is. They changed America. They made America a place where the little guy could go to the top, where soldiers did fight together and not in segregated battalions. So basically, the thesis of my film, Hollywoodism, and I call it ism because it's like an ideology, has a, its own set of values, the white picket fence and all of that stuff. And they created an America on film, which ultimately conquered the real America, which was a place where the little guy couldn't get to the top, certainly not the Jews. Jews are excluded from all kinds of stuff. And ultimately, they changed America by taking the America that was born in the shtetls of Eastern Europe and putting it on film. I was wondering, though, if the argument wasn't exaggerated a little bit, because America was known as a land of opportunity, was it not? Sure, it was a land of opportunity compared to, you know, to the Pale of Settlement. But Jews couldn't be in banking. Jews couldn't be in insurance. Jews couldn't be on the board of Columbia University. Jews couldn't be academics in all the legitimate things. So they invented entire disciplines. For example, Jews couldn't be in classics. So what did they do? They invented, you know, anthropology and all kinds of other social sciences where they could actually excel and be accepted. But in classic academia, they weren't accepted. In fact, in my movie, I showed these little movies that people made to educate the immigrants. And you see a guy with a beard, whatever, how to be a proper American. A proper American didn't walk around talking Yiddish and keeping Shabbos. That wasn't a proper American. So, yes, there were no pogroms in America. So obviously America was a much better place to be than the shtetl of Eastern Europe. But it wasn't the America of Hollywood. That America, that fantasy America was invented by Jews. And as I say, and as Gabler says, you know, that America finally convinced Americans that that's what America is. I mean, obviously there were roots. But I recently read a wonderful book called The Jewish World of Alexander Hamilton, where he proves, the author, that Hamilton, who was the big uh, proponent of an America where the little guy could make it to the top, was halachically Jewish. Because his mother, Rachel Levine, you know, he grew up in the Caribbean, Hamilton, 
his mother probably was a convert who married a guy named Levine. And he grew up with those values, the values that the little guy should make it to the top. And it was embodied in the Constitution. So, yeah, there was that strand. But that strand was not, that little guy can make it to the top, can do anything, can practice anything. That wasn't mainstream America when the Jews arrived on their boats in the late 1800s, early 1900s from Europe. Last question. What are you working on now? I'm working on all sorts of stuff. I mean, I'm trying to do something on a history of anti-Semitism, but the main thing that I'm doing is a four-part series on the science of Avatar, you know, the big movie. Two of the three highest grossest films in history are James Cameron's Avatar. And it's a science fiction film, you know, the spaceships and all that. But Cameron is very, very careful in his science. He doesn't just design a spaceship. He designs a spaceship that an astrophysicists will say, you know what, that's probably the way those spaceships are going to look. He has on this foreign planet plants that glow. Well, there are actually on Earth plants that glow. So he wants to ground his world building in science fiction in actual science. So I'm doing a four-part series that uses Avatar as a springboard to explore real science. Interesting, because if you look through your films, the list of films, you seem to have eclectic type of interests. Some Jewish, some not Jewish, some it's interesting what you pick, what you don't pick. You know, some people will interview me and say, tell me about your non-Jewish films. And what I tell them and what I'm going to say to you, I don't have any non-Jewish films. All my films are Jewish films because I'm a Jew and I can't help but see the world through my Judaic glasses so that if we're looking at science, for example, science fiction, in science fiction, people zap their consciousness from one place to another, like in Star Trek, beam me up. The same thing in Avatar. Avatar is like another body for my consciousness, my avatar. So that leads to a discussion of what are you zapping? Well, consciousness. What's consciousness? Is it a neshuma? Is it a soul? Right? So I I can't help that everything that, you know, I just made a six-part series on the transatlantic slave trade with Samuel L. Jackson. So somebody said to me, oh, you know, how could you possibly understand what black people in America went through during slavery? I'd say, well, my mother of blessed memory, and my grandmother that I'm named after, they were slaves, actual slaves in a slave labor camp called Transnistria across the Nystr in Ukraine, in a slave labor camp run by Romanian fascist Nazis and Germans. And one of my mother's sisters was married at the time to a non-Jew. And the non-Jewish doctor she was married to bought, paid hard cash for my mother, the slave, and my grandmother, the slave, and bought them out of slavery. And they fled across, bribed somebody to bring them across to the Soviet, the Russian side, away from the Nazi Romanian side. So when the guy asked me, say, how would you understand what black people went through. And I said, you know, I still gather my family, like all Jews, once a year. And we say, you know, we were liberated, we Jews, 3,500 years ago from slavery, and we still didn't get over it. So I don't expect you to get over it after 150 years. And I'll tell you one other thing in that discussion. This guy was a black Canadian, and he was an executive at uh, one of the television stations, and he who thought that I couldn't understand 
what a black person went through through slavery. So I asked him, I said, this morning when you woke up, did you roll your eyes to heaven and thank God that you're not a slave? And you could see on his face, he didn't know whether to get angry at me because, wait a minute, what are you suggesting? Because I'm black, I should thank God that I'm not a slave? Why, it's my natural condition being a slave? And he said, no, I didn't. And I said, I did. I did. I thank God this morning that I'm not a slave. And I thank him every time I sit down to a meal. And I thank him three times a day when I say my prayers for taking me out of slavery. So, I, you know, about five times, a, five, six, seven times a day, I thank God that I'm not a slave. So to get back to your question, when I made my film about 400 years of the African slave trade, I was still making a Jewish film. You know, I don't like have two. You know, I put my kippah on, I take my kippah off, and it's whatever I approach. I approach with my set of uh, hashkafa. Right, right. Well, thank you so very much for joining the program today. It was really informative talking to you. And much hatzalchah in your future work. All right, that does it for us. In the episode description, I will have links to all three of the documentaries that I discussed with Simcha Yakobovich today. All of them are interesting, each in its own way. Also in the episode description will be a link to my new book on the most powerful Jew to serve in Congress during the Holocaust. I hope you enjoyed the episode and have a great day or a great night, depending on when you're listening to this podcast.